Hi, this is Peter Francho, your state comptroller in Maryland. You're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here along with my co-host Michael Sanderson. Michael, how are you today? Doing fine. And folks, we know that we have a lot of news happening here in Maryland, uh, particularly with elections. If you follow the podcast, you know we've been talking about that the last few episodes. We still have some recounts pending, potentially. If you're looking for more coverage or follow-up to what we were talking about on previous episodes, you can always visit our blog, the Conduit Street blog. And, Michael, we're going to do something different today. Our our idea here is to try and do a weekly episode of the podcast, but to sort of flip back and forth and do the news of the day and current events and whatnot the way we have been on on alternating episodes, but to try and seed in episodes like this one where we center on a particular topic, try and go a level or two deeper, and explore some policy issues that are not necessarily happening this week, but they're more like this year or this political generation. And I think we got a winner for you today. Yeah, we do have a real winner, I think, today. So today we are going to focus on uh, new technology that's driving new policy. This is going to be part one of a two-part series. Yeah, yeah we, were, we were at risk of having two and a half hours of content as we were going through notes for today. So uh, breaking this up into two pieces probably makes sense for you and for us. But today we're going to focus on technology that is external to governments. So the next episode will focus on technology that is new within government and dealing with issues such as land use, et cetera. But, Michael, let's jump right in. And I want to talk about ride sharing. So this is a a big one. There has been a big fight not only here in Maryland but across the country and actually worldwide Mm -hmm. about ride sharing such as Uber and Lyft. That's what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. You were around a couple years ago when this became a big issue here in Maryland. There are a lot of issues to talk about this, but can you just give us some perspective on what things were like when Uber and Lyft came into town and said, we want to be in Maryland. Here's what we need to do to make that happen. I, I, think, I think the whole landscape for this conversation we want to have, um, I mean, starting with ride sharing makes sense because it's easy to grasp and it's more or less settled in the state of Maryland. But I mean, what this comes down to is an industry that basically didn't exist 10, definitely 25 years ago. And so back back 10 or 20 years ago, if, if you wanted to, you know, get a ride in a car from here to there, there were taxi cabs. Right. That was the beginning and the end of the conversation. And uh, Maryland, not, not unique, but, you know, virtually everybody had a law to talk about who gets to have a taxicab license? What kind of companies get authorized to do it? How do they set their rates? There's a governance body in Maryland. It's the Public Service Commission oversees licenses, oversees the licenses for cab drivers and so forth. So all that is a regulated um, industry with you know franchises and other things of that nature. So I mean that's the way we've governed ride for hire in Maryland. But it's all been implicitly built on a premise that it's going to be a cab company 
with a car labeled as a cab. Right. That, that's who gives you the ride to the airport or wherever you want to go. Right. And forever, that's how things were. And I should mention here, too, if you're looking for specific bill numbers, uh, that's not what we're trying to do here today. We want to talk about just relatively interesting policy that has to do with government, innovative technologies that you have to strike a balance as a local government or state government or national government. So if you're looking for those specific bill numbers, you can always go on our blog where you can find those specific bill numbers and dig deeper if you like. Yeah, not not too much uh, you know Nietzschean philosophy on the blog. Most of our references to Uber would probably be about ride sharing, I would think. So. Okay, so you, you mentioned taxi cabs, and I think that is probably the most interesting part of this debate because you have these traditional taxi drivers who said, wait a minute, <laughs> this guy is going to come in with his own car. He's not regulated. He doesn't have a license, and he's just going to pick people up that call him up on an app, and that's not fair because forever, as a taxi driver, I've had to get a special license. I've had to go through background checks and different requirements for my vehicle, inspections, whatnot, and it creates an uneven playing field for me. So how is it fair to the taxi drivers? That was a big part of this debate. Sure. You know, if if these guys are just going to all of a sudden come in and they're going to flood the market with Ubers, nobody's going to be using my traditional taxi service anymore. Right. And what what happened is by the time this was a ripe policy debate in the state legislature in Maryland, and I'm sure in state capitals across the state, this is already happening. Right. I mean, people, you can download the Uber app, the Lyft app, and I'm sure there are other ride-sharing services. Those are the two I'm most familiar mm-hmm. with. But you, you could you could download the app and start calling for a ride in Baltimore or you know in various parts of Maryland already. So it, it wasn't like this is a hypothetical concept. Right. This is happening already. So you end up with the government saying, well, do we have a role here? Is this is this a taxi cab? Is this is the Uber company operating a taxi cab service without being regulated? Right. And I mean, this is a little bit like we were talking about the Wayfair sales tax case before the Supreme Court. You know, the old law was you had to have a physical presence for the state to have any connection to you, and the Supreme Court has basically said that's not the modern economy. You right. can have an internet non-physical presence and you can be in Maryland or Ohio or California without physically being there, having employees. This is the same thing. Is Uber here? Well, they're, they're definitely here. They're doing business. So the, the, the state had legislation in to say a variety of different proposals of how do you get them to be here, be accountable within the state of Maryland and, Then it raises all those questions you talked about. Imagine yourself as a senator or a delegate and you have a constituent who went to New Orleans or went to, you know, a a conference somewhere and they used Uber and they came back to Maryland and they said, I want Uber in my community. Don't do anything to screw this up for them. Right. Yeah. Why? Why? Why don't why don't I have this? Why don't I have this? Annapolis or Bowie or whatever. So. So so you're getting that. So that argument from the constituent. I mean, we have all these issues with the taxi industry and then. We'll talk about other issues in a minute, but from that role, how difficult is it sitting in that chair to to try and balance this between the constituent needs and then also the needs of industries that have been established here in Maryland and have a big footprint already? Right. So that I mean, that's a it's a challenging policy question, and I. I think you basically don't have the luxury of playing ostrich on this. Mm-hmm. You, you don't have the ability of saying, you know what, we're just not going to deal with it. You, you, you have to sort out 
what is this activity? And I, I mean, it's a, it's a there's a there's a variety of valid outcomes from a policy perspective. You can say we're going to just leave it as a un, an unregulated activity that we implicitly bless as happening here, or you can say we want to bring them under some kind of governance. You can use the Public Service Commission as maybe the obvious place. Um, and again, this, they already regulate right. the taxi cabs in right. the state. So, and, 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 you know, maybe that stretches their capacity, but that's kind of that, you know, for that body to evolve is not, doesn't seem irrational. Right. Um, or, or do you come up with something else? Do you leave this as a matter of, of local decision, local regulation and so forth? And that, that's another matter too, is, you know, we're, we're the county association. How does this fit with different jurisdictions right. and, and uh, what they do for either their local cab companies or, other, you know, other players locally. So all this, all this was a really tricky web. And I, I will, I will tell you that what was fascinating with the debate over ride sharing legislation was there were bills introduced in general assembly session. We got the 90 day session mm-hmm. and you and I have talked to death about the calendar of the 90 day session. We did a whole episode talking about, you know, these various timetables and deadlines and your bill has to be doing this by this date and has to be advanced this far and so forth. And with something like two weeks left in session, the the so-called Uber bill, which was dealing with all the various ride sharing services was still sitting in its initial form, had been a, had, had a hearing, but no big discussion. No action. And then, then I just, I can tell you, word just got out that it's happening. Mm-hmm. The, the bill's going to pass in some form. There's enough pressure from citizens and voters who want the service and from the company itself who wanted to have some certainty for, you know, is our, are we going to be able to do business in this state? Right. Um, so, and, and the taxi cab companies wanted some action. They wanted something relatively aggressive to put, put things on equal footing, but it became clear that this was going to be a, everybody get on board, we'll work something out. And by the end of session, we'll pass a bill. So you have the constituents in your office, you're sitting in that chair, you're listening to what they're saying, but there are issues. And I know those issues were brought up. So issues such as fingerprinting drivers and background checks. So Uber has their background checks. The state also conducts background checks on these drivers. They have to be insured. But fingerprinting is a sticking point. And Uber has drawn a line in the sand in a place like Austin, Texas, where actually Uber pulled out once Austin said, we want you to fingerprint all these drivers. So an, an issue like that, we understand that you know your constituents want this, but at the same time, you want to get into a car and know that the person driving you, number one, is safe. They right. know how to drive the car, right. right? And that's something that we have to consider. Also, you want to make sure that they are not you know, a potentially dangerous person. So that is a really interesting debate, and you have to sort of figure out what can we do, what can't we do. It's a give and take, right? Right. Uh, I mean— I think lying in the background. I mean, sorry, this gets a little political philosophy, but mm-hmm. I, but I think that's what's at, at, at stake here. Um, lying in the background is there is an implied approval when somebody's conducting a business activity out in the open that if the government has let this happen, it must be okay. Right. So on a certain level, you know. I trust that there are inspectors 
who went to that carnival before my kids came there, mm-hmm. and they looked around at the rides and they made sure they were assembled correctly and that sort of stuff. I mean, I trust that somebody tested out that elevator before I put my family into it. Mm-hmm. I mean, so on a certain level, that carries all the way down. We assume that somebody's been testing out the restaurants and that it's okay for me to eat there, right? Right. right. So, okay, that mentality, it's totally reasonable for a citizen to say, well, I mean, I got the app right. and these these uh, these lift cars are all over town. Yeah, I see the stickers everywhere, yeah. right? I can push the button right. on the app and it's got to be okay. So it's got to be okay. Right. So presumably somebody has tended to making sure this is safe, that this person isn't a bad person and so forth. Okay, even if that's not true all the way down, I think a reasonable person – you know, a reasonable person can come to that conclusion, at least in part. And a lot of law is built on the notion of what's a reasonable person think or do in a circumstance. Right. So even if you're a hands-off kind of person, if you say government doesn't have any role, let I'm, I'm laissez-faire all the way, mm-hmm. let, let private transactions happen left and right, I think there's still at least a hook to say – some degree of oversight over the companies to make sure they're doing, whether it's background checks or whatever else, to make sure the vehicles get some kind of inspection right. or there are you know, other things along those lines that you have some accountability um, it is at least a lot of people would say that's a reasonable expectation for government to step in and have that role. And as a government, you don't yeah. want to just say, you know what, we'll trust you if, you know, you're Uber or Lyft, right? We'll mm-hmm. trust that you did it. There has to be some sort of check, right, to sort of protect yourself because there is that perception amongst your constituents that somebody is checking the boxes and making sure you're okay. So, I mean, so that's a, that's a point of view mm-hmm. that we're, we're both implicitly saying there, and that's effectively became the Maryland point of view. And it's more or less the consensus point of view. I, I don't know if there are places out there that have said, fine, we'll let ride sharing be the Wild West, just do whatever you want to do. It may be that there are, mm-hmm. and they may be in the Wild West. But, right. but as, as, a, as a practical matter, that's the direction we went here in Maryland. There's a county government component here, but this is mostly about the government writ large. And this is basically a state matter of, okay, if if a company like Uber or Lyft wants to do business here, you got to check all these boxes. We're worried about safety. We're worried about accountability. Do all this stuff. Get your stuff on file with the Public Service Commission. If they give you direction, you got to obey it. And then, fine, go to it. So so we've heard the, from the constituents, then we've heard about these other issues, the safety issues, and just that you know perception that everything will be okay if I get in the car because somebody's looking out for me. Michael, it seems like BWI was probably really busy uh, at during this time because mm-hmm. I know lobbyists were flying in from all over the country. Oh, yeah, yeah. You had big steak dinners being served <laughs> up all over town. You're looking around and saying, who are all these people? They brought in the big guns for this, right? Yeah, and, and all all sorts of folks landed in town. And, I mean, there is there is sort of a an, an advocacy community in and around Annapolis. There's right. a variety of professional lobbying shops who take on private clients and so forth. And that's that's a language we learn to speak. We hear this all the time. You know, you and I and our policy colleagues here at MAKO representing counties, everybody knows who we are because mm-hmm. we're employees of an association. But it happens all the time. We're like, oh, who's involved in that bill? Oh, oh, that firm has right. that client and this firm has that client. OK, that's what we need to call that sort of thing. I mean, the the role of lobbyists is probably its own. You know, it could be its own standalone podcast. Yes, but, it could. Yes, <laughs> but, it could. Uh, but, you know, that the the whole town 
was had had shown up, and there were corporate people from you know from headquarters of all these big big companies and so forth. Um, it, it's it was that kind of issue, and I'm sure once they were done here, you know they're headed to Richmond and they're headed to Austin right. and so forth. So that's you know, that's that's the nature of this kind of issue. They're living out of a suitcase, and so I guess you know as that legislator sitting in that chair and hearing all different sides of this, you can see how this is a very, very interesting policy issue and how different cities, different states, different countries have gone about this. Like you said, there may be some that are the wild, wild west, but this is an example of an emerging technology where policy had to catch up because, like you said, this was already going on. And then somebody said, you know what, we better see what we can do to regulate this a little bit, but also we don't want them to leave the state because our people want it here. Right. So, so that's basically our theme for today. Mm-hmm. So introduced by an easy case study of ride sharing and Uber and Lyft. Um, who are now here and have a relatively broad and, and big presence in Maryland. But it took some fits and starts and some square peg process to turn Maryland law into something that would work both for taxicab companies and for the more, you know, the, the ride sharing, uh, the, you know, that, that kind of the sharing economy mm-hmm. and to sort of catch up with, with, with those changes. It, it took some work and, um, and, and you know, we, we see that happening in the marketplace as well. You know, right now there's a public presence for, for Uber as a company you know, that they're, they're clearly trying to focus on their image and the things that they deliver yep. for their for their riders and so forth. Yep. I think, you know, there's, there's a lot going on in this marketplace as it's starting to settle in as something that's just going to be around. OK, so if Uber says that they are not a taxi company, Airbnb also is here in Maryland, and they say that they're not a hotel. So, Michael, if they are not a hotel, right. what are they? Right. There we go. Right. So so this is chapter next in basically the same story. And, I mean, to, to some degree, this is going to sound second verse, same as the first, mm-hmm. because we have a bunch of laws at the state and particularly at the local level that are about hotels and short-term accommodations and things of that nature. And once again, we have these laws are written on the assumption that we have things like a hotel is a big building built as a commercial enterprise and it's open 24 hours a day for the explicit purpose of people to stay, you know, short term. Right. right. And right. we rent out rooms in a hotel. Everybody understands that as a business. And if I own that yeah. hotel, I have people coming in and making sure that my fire suppression systems are sure, up right. to date and I mm-hmm. have to comply with a bunch of different regulations mm-hmm. and I'm sitting here in my office and I, I look out the window and I see somebody pulling up, you know, with a luggage rack on top of the car, but they're not pulling up to my hotel. They're pulling up to a house across the street. And I'm noticing that they're staying there just like they'd stay at my hotel. But then I wonder why they're not subject to the same regulations that I'm subject to and hence the Airbnb debate or part of the debate. Yeah. So so here we are. Um, if if the ride sharing and Uber and Lyft is a matter of one that's basically in the books that might be refined or changed, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but we now have a law and legal structure around them. Uh, short-term rentals is one that's in the middle of those fits and starts because we know um, – I, th- I think Airbnb is the company we think of as having sort of – you know, jump started or, or kick started this 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 revolution in short term stays. Right. But things like uh, vacation rental by owner VRBO mm-hmm. has been around. I, I think maybe even longer than Airbnb. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are places for monthly rentals and weekly rentals and other things of that nature. Um, but there's clearly a market for 
you know, uh, uh, well, the Naval Academy is having their commencement exercise, and boy, wouldn't it be nice to have a place to stay for four nights around sure. Annapolis? Sure. Someone decides around here, I'm going to free up my room and, you know, make some cash by doing that. Um, that's been happening informally forever. You put an ad in the paper. It's been sort of an informal, quiet economy. And I think as a practical matter, we've even had laws written to accommodate that, the idea of you're not a and b if you're only renting out less than five nights a year right. or something like that. Uh, but what about, you know, n- now technology has advanced this marketplace and made it viable for someone to say, I want to rent out a room in my in my home 30 or 60 or 100 nights a year. Right. Well, and so, <laughs> so really the technology brought this issue to the forefront. This has been going on for a long time informally, but when you have the website and you start getting complaints from neighbors who are saying, this guy doesn't even live next door. He's right. just renting this out right. mm-hmm. every night of the year as an Airbnb. So he should be treated like a hotel. And I didn't sign up to live next door to a hotel where there are people coming right. in and out that I don't know. It's not zoned that way. Right. And then you have issues such as taxation, right? And that's sort of what we have been in the middle of. And that does affect local governments. So Michael, where are we now? We have seen Airbnb bills the last few years. We know that there are public safety concerns, right? Some counties, I think, would like to know where exactly these properties are so they can send out inspectors to make sure that the the property is viable for someone to be staying in. And we know that if you're operating a traditional B&B, those people may be a little upset, too, because they may be subjected to different requirements than Airbnb. But let's talk about the taxation side of this. And as the hotel owner, this also gets my attention. Right. Sure. Right. Sure. I mean, if you're if you're an established business with a, you know, you have to get a license to operate a hotel in my county or in the county Mm -hmm. next door or whatever. Um, So you have a business license and so forth, and you are collecting and remitting sales tax on those rooms. You're probably collecting and remitting a hotel tax to your county. Right. um, And, and more or less doing so perfectly willingly. That's, you know, that's the cost of doing business. And that seems perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, uh, the people who want to stay at the hotel, they get to weigh whether it's worth doing that. That's fine. Um, so, what happens when you when you say there's that you know there's that neighbor or someone across town who's nominally competing for that person who's in town for two nights for some event, mm-hmm. and they have a choice between your hotel or the other person's Airbnb? Um, you can make an argument that that's a parallel service. So, where does that stop? Now, if, if you start with taxability. It's different, right? It I mean, is different. I mean, uh, because the, the the guy from Milwaukee who's here for two nights in Easton, mm-hmm. um, he could stay at the hotel, and he's doing business with the hotel that's at a fixed address. But if he goes onto a website from Milwaukee and pays money to Airbnb, who may be in California, right? So, but that, then he's staying <laughs> in a place in Maryland, right? So, is he is he doing business with the Airbnb company, or is he doing business with the host who owns the property? Um, you know exactly who are the players, where are they physically located, what responsibility do they have to the jurisdiction that surrounds, you know, that surrounds the property and so forth. And again, we're back to those same questions. In addition to taxes Mm -hmm. and who can ask them to collect or demand that they collect, there's also all that stuff in the background of to what extent do we leave this just 
unregulated and you know, buyer beware? Mm-hmm. Or do we end up saying, okay, we want to have this be safe and have some kind of oversight? Right. Um, and at the same time, this is a service a lot of people like. And maybe, uh, you know, in addition to people saying, I like my Uber ride, there's also some people in that debate saying, I like the extra money I make driving for Lyft. Right. So this is a, an extra gig for me and it helps me economically. And now I'm, you know, buying buying dinner at the local restaurant and getting a haircut. I'm helping the local economy. Well, that's good, too. Mm-hmm. Same mm-hmm. thing happened. The person who owns that building outside of Easton um, has extra income as a result of that. So... So now you have another stakeholder locally. Um, so all these issues of public safety and accountability and zoning and local economic interests all kind of collide here. And this one is unresolved, basically. So, so, so where are we now? Because I, I think <clears throat> Airbnb has said, look, we are more than willing to collect and remit, but – we're going to give it. We're going to remit that money to the comptroller, and then the comptroller can then remit that money to the counties. We don't want to deal with each county. We want to give it to one person, and we also don't want to tell you exactly where these Airbnbs are located. You're going to have to trust us on that one. Is that pretty much been their stance on this issue? That hey, we will pay the taxes. We're more than willing. We want to. But we're not going to deal with you know twenty four jurisdictions right. in Maryland. We're going to go to one source. So there, there's there's two arguments embedded in there, both of which are interesting. One is the sort of administrative complexity, mm-hmm. and I think you probably have to have some degree of sympathy for the company, even if they're a big company like Airbnb, who's got a market capitalization that's you know bigger than Hyatt. Who, sure. who actually like owns buildings and right. hotels and right. stuff like that, right? But right. okay, that's fine. But Airbnb is a big deal. But still, for them to have to understand the nuance of every local hotel law, not just in Maryland, every state. but in every state all across, you know, all across the globe. Mm-hmm. Okay, I can see that being a pain in the neck for them. So the idea of let's do everything within Maryland at one one drop off way station. Okay, yeah, you know, there's an argument there. The other argument from their point of view is really them taken up on behalf of their hosts. They don't want their hosts to deal with it. Right. And I mean, sure. Like if you're one of the things you, you, you provide as a service to the host, the host is the property owner who's willing to let some or all of the property be used by an Airbnb user. Right. 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 And so Airbnb as a company or their com- competitors as companies, they make a proposition. We will handle all the tricky stuff. Mm-hmm. So we'll do the billing. We'll collect the taxes. We'll take care of all that kind of stuff. We'll host the website that advertises your property. We'll put it in the proper listing. We'll make sure the kind of person who's coming to your neighborhood sees it. So we'll do the heavy lifting to make this easier than you running an ad in the paper. Mm-hmm. So, okay, that's the service they're trying to provide as a value added. They want that to be as easy and seamless as possible so lots of hosts will sign up. Sure. So they don't want me <laughs> as a host to have to go online and fill out all these tricky forms and right. submit them to Airbnb before I can even list my property. Right. I mean, yeah, if you're gonna if you're gonna rent out a room in your house for six nights a year, the last thing you want to do is have to get a sales tax vendor license so you can remit, you know, forty seven dollars at the end of the year or every every month by the twenty first of the month or whatever right. the structure. You know, that so so fine. The company says we'll take care of that on people's behalf, but also kind of embedded in there is this notion of and 
if if you tell us this property is available on Airbnb, we're not going to package that in a list and hand it over to the zoning people who might come knocking on your door and ask, how come there's so many cars in your front yard? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but but the problem there is that you, you sort of have to trust them, right, that they are remitting the correct amount of, of money to the local government or to the state who then distributes it to the local governments. And there's not really much of a check that you as a local government can do because they're not giving you those physical addresses, correct? Right. They're not giving you that raw data. Right. So, so right now we've had two or three different bites at the apple with legislation being introduced in Maryland to try and come up with some statewide set of principles for what who needs to get a license, who needs to register, who should be collecting the taxes, and so forth. And you have a pretty deep divide between the so-called maybe bricks and mortar residential lodging, the the hotels, motels, and and conventional bed and breakfast places versus the online platforms like Airbnb and the like who are trying to pitch a similar but not identical service Mm -hmm. and – do you treat them exactly the same way? Do you come up with something totally different? That is unresolved in Maryland. We've had several bills introduced, uh, lively public hearings on each of them, and all of them resulting in no action, no consensus on how to move. We haven't seen either the House or the Senate be able to move a bill out of committee that has majority support for all of its pieces. So unlike Uber and Lyft, this is an issue that's still up in the air. and This is an issue that I would assume will continue to be debated. There'll be bills introduced every year until they come up with at least some sort of outline or framework yeah. on how we're going to do this here in Maryland. And and at the moment, you end up with a patchwork of local implementation where you have some jurisdictions, uh, Montgomery County in Maryland reached out through Airbnb and has basically negotiated an agreement to collect taxes, to collect the local hotel tax. Right. Um, but that's that's basically... You know, taxation through litigation, as opposed to being equally administered everywhere. Mm-hmm. There are other places that probably don't have the same legal wherewithal of a large Montgomery County. So if you're, we've been talking about Talbot County, mm-hmm. Talbot County doesn't have such an agreement. So are they collecting a local hotel tax on these short-term stays there? Even if the state law says it's owed, if you don't have a way to oblige someone to collect it, you effectively don't have a tax. Yes. So lots of issues to be resolved with Airbnb and other platforms that are similar to Airbnb. This one's still up in the air. And again, we'll see a lot of bills introduced to try and deal with this. There is a patchwork of local laws right now, but I would imagine that there will be some deal worked out between all stakeholders, between you as the guy who wants to rent your extra room and me as your neighbor who doesn't like it, between local governments and Airbnb and the state government, the comptroller as such. Right. It's difficult to get everybody on right. the same page, and that's right. why we haven't had this result. Well, you got a bunch of motivations pointing in the direction of getting it worked out because the company like Airbnb would rather they handle the administrative stuff as opposed to their hosts. Mm-hmm. So they'd like to see a deal get worked out. You think the bricks and mortar industry would like to see something that makes more equity or parity between their legal treatment. Um, and you'd like to, you probably have a number of jurisdictions who say, you know, I, I, it isn't fair that, that the local hotel has to pay a tax and we can find them, but we can't find these other, these other folks who are selling basically the same thing. So there's a lot of incentive to pull this together. It just hasn't happened yet. All right, so can we leave it there on Airbnb? I think it's good. All right, so we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about drones. We will talk about 
Waze, which is a traffic app which helps you save a few minutes on your commute. There are some issues, though, with Waze. And we'll also talk about autonomous vehicles and how they are going to potentially change the policy landscape moving forward. We'll talk about all of that and more after the break. back to the Conduit Street podcast. Today we are focusing on technology and policy, trying to catch up with it. This is part one of a part two series. Michael, let's now talk about drones. Unmanned aerial vehicles, you may have heard that term, UAV. We have seen drones from your neighbors flying a drone in the backyard, all the way to military applications for drones, where they are flying drones and, and using them to launch weapons, to conduct surveillance. And there are a lot of players here as well. We've talked about Uber and Airbnb and how many players are involved there. Well, here we have the FAA, we have the state government, the local government, we have hobby enthusiasts, and we have privacy advocates too, right? Right. Because drones impact everyone's life. And this is an issue certainly where policy has not been able to catch up with this evolving technology. We know that drones have many excellent applications for county and state governments, provide improved public safety services to the public. We have seen drones delivering defibrillators, you know, to uh, someone who has a heart attack and the fire truck can't get through or the ambulance because of traffic. We've seen drones help with traffic management. We've seen drones fight fires. But Michael, we also have challenges with drones, uh, including safety, privacy, and liability concerns. There's another rich policy issue that Anybody can see this is – you can see the tra- trajectory for this technology affecting policy. Mm-hmm. And we have a new player here in the federal government. The other things we've been talking about have effectively been state oversight, state taxation, state and local governments. Here, I mean the, the Federal Aviation Administration, who they themselves were built to deal with airplanes and then helicopters – and now suddenly have the charge for having whatever degree of federal oversight is going to end up being warranted and approved over things that are, you know, as big as a pizza box. Right. So this is, this is a totally different universe for them as well. But the way those of us who deal with state and local policy are thinking about this, um, the feds matter, but a big part of what matters is going to be where do the feds stop and what is going to be left to us to decide whether there's a public role in, once again, governance and oversight and public safety and so forth. And and, and so far, the FAA's role has not been very well defined. They, they are big players here, but there is a little bit of ambiguity about where they fit in. And as far as state and local governments, I think we're still trying to figure out where we fit in, both as users of this technology, so our fire and our police, and obviously there's an economic development component to this, but also as potential regulators to deal with someone calling and saying, hey, there's a drone flying out my window. I don't like it. 
what what can you do about that? Right. And it's sort of like, well, that's a little bit in flux. All right. So, I mean, the, the, the Feds thus far seem to have, have been principally looking at licensing, the, mm-hmm. the idea of if – if you, whether you are a public entity or whether you're a hobbyist, if you're going to buy and operate one of these devices, then we at least want to know who you are, where can we find you, and what's the device that you're going to be using. We need you to register that drone. Right. So so registration or licensing or something along those lines. And that's not necessarily we want you to take a class and demonstrate you are skillful mm-hmm. or that, that you have particular kind of training. It's just a matter of... You know, we want you to fill out the card that says, I'm the registered owner of this item. Right. <laughs> so so that, that way, if you're flying a drone near an airport and it lands on the runway and you're interfering with air traffic, they can look at that drone and the serial number and say, right. hey, there was Sanderson right. who <laughs> flew that drone right. and lost control of it or whatever. Right? Something like that. Right. So that so th- and that that actually comports like your mm-hmm. your you know, your your description of this happening at an airport. OK, this is the mentality of the FAA. They are airport people. Right, right. So they are thinking about the airways as transportation and making sure we try and eliminate collisions and things of that nature. So that 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 makes sense. That's, that's precisely the sort of thing that the FAA mentality is going to be about. Right. The FAA is probably not going to have an appetite to be thinking about the sort of nightmare stuff that you just made a quick allusion to of what if there's, you know, the hobbyist drone with a video camera that's just flying around my neighborhood, mm-hmm. taking pictures of the kids at the park or flying around homes looking for open windows or flying around a warehouse looking to see whether the doors are locked. Right, right. <laughs> so that, I mean, the FAA, this is not their strong suit. This is local public safety. This is local planning and zoning and so forth. And this is where the technology abuts very incomplete public policy. So in Maryland, this is not a brand new issue. In 2015, the General Assembly actually passed a bill basically saying, let's put this on hold for a little while. The bill preempted local governments from regulating drones, protect our public safety and privacy rights in sensitive facilities. But I think the state's view was, we don't want a patchwork of local laws to interfere with the potential economic development potential that drones have. So right. we're going to put this on hold. We're going to get. We're going to study the issue. Mako got an amendment on the bill to provide a report to the state and to the governor to say these are the incidents that we've seen with these drones, and maybe yeah. this is the case why we need to be able to regulate them. But Michael, we've been preempted right. now. But this is not, you know, we've talked about the privacy right. issues in your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. But we also have to think about issues at local jails, at local water treatment plants. If you search drone incidents on Google right now, you will see a number of issues pop up where drones have been flying over jails and dropping contraband, or where you have drones. You and I were talking about it the other day in Europe, a drone flew into a nuclear reactor. I right. mean, that kind of stuff is scary, right? So. <clears throat> Those issues also pop up for local governments and how we protect the privacy and the public safety of our residents and also our sensitive facilities and our jails and such. Right. I think, I mean, you can, you don't need to have a crazy imagination. You don't need to be a tinfoil hat kind of person to connect the dots from stuff you've already talked about to the, you know, the next nightmare, right? I mean, I mean, we've already got like, I mean, our state's in the middle of an opioid crisis. Yes. And we hear these stories occasionally of 
you know, of, of medicine, you know, of, you know, pharmaceuticals being shipped from China just through the mail mm-hmm. <laughs> and being sent to somebody who's going to effectively be a drug dealer because mm-hmm. they get a bunch of Chinese medicine that somebody's going to use because it has an opioid base and someone wants to abuse it. Right. Okay. So it's tough enough to think of that as this is a big brown paper package that's got to go in a plane and then in a truck. But what about somebody who's you know manufacturing this sort of stuff somewhere around here and then attaches it to an unregistered drone mm-hmm. and flies it to my neighbor's house? Um, I mean, okay, so that's a, that's a whole nother layer of Complexity. why we why we might be concerned about you know unmanned vehicles um, right. and you know I mean when when. Amazon big company talks about where we think we might in the future be delivering stuff, you know, you know, in, in 60 minutes or less by way of a drone. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Domino says, we'll, 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 we'll send you a pizza. We'll be able to do that by drone. So we don't have to pay some schlub to drive his beater car over to your house. That's, that's fine. But once you open the airways to, to this kind of activity, and if the FAA is going to say, hey, everything under 120 feet is no, not really anything of our concern. As long as it's not outside the airport, right. we, we don't really care. But. I mean, at, at some point, yeah, we're going to have, you know, Baltimore can look like Blade Runner, right? It's yeah. just too much. <laughs> it's, it is very, it's a lot. So you can see all the issues around this issue. It's an interesting policy debate with drones and who should regulate them, who shouldn't regulate them. And we have seen troubling incidents occurring throughout the state, and there's going to have to be a balance. Well, I mean, it's going to push the same kind of issue that we've been talking about. What's the proper role for oversight and regulation for an activity that has tremendous upside? I mean, you've already, you know, in, in, in looking at this stuff, I know, you know, you've uncovered these various uses. And how can you not have sympathy for the idea of, you know, the 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 EMS officer who says the drone can get this defibrillator to that pool faster than I can get there myself it's, by vehicle. It's awesome, right? So I mean, I want that. I mean, right. I want I want I want that service, and and who wouldn't? Mm-hmm. Okay, so how how do we how do we get that in a way that doesn't mean we sacrifice so much privacy and so much safety in other regards? So this ends up being. You know, some combination of the feds through the aviation administration and then where they leave off state and potentially local laws trying to fill in that gap to weigh, you know, weigh all those issues and try and find some sort of a balance. And as you've mentioned, lying in the background here, Maryland, we feel that we've got an economic development stake in this. There's so much technology research going on in cybersecurity, but also in fields like aviation and in robotics and so forth, that Maryland is one of the places that should be the beneficiary of a tech boom for drones and things like that. And by the way, if you're trying to lure Amazon to Maryland, right. that, that, that might be a component, right? Right. right. So, so, I mean, all this stuff connects. It all fits. There's economic arguments. There's privacy and safety arguments. Um, all this stuff is complicated stuff. If you're in public policy today, technology is forcing the issue. And this is one more area where we are incomplete, but we're not alone in that regard. We're, this, is, this is stuff that we just didn't, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't have anything on the books about unmanned you know, vehicles delivering pizzas. Right. <laughs> that would have been something out of Area 51. Nobody <laughs> right. knew about it, right? And right. now it's here. And 20 years from now, we'll have more of these technologies that pop up. So, Michael, we've talked about 
technologies that are here and now that we are actively engaged in, that we're dealing with on the federal, state, and local levels. Now let's talk about what's next. So I don't know if many people have heard of this app called Waze. I actually use the app. I I like it. Yeah, Yeah, you like it. So I mean, but this is another case of uh, technology is meeting a demand, and over time, this will become popular, widely popular, and potentially insanely popular, to the point that we may have all these same policy debates. So what what policy questions are advanced by this seemingly harmless little right. app that explains to me if I want to get from here to the meeting with the Howard County Council, which I did yesterday, mm-hmm. um, I have a I have an app that tells me, well, if you take this series of roads, you're going to get there three or four minutes faster than even your GPS might have told it you. It sounds harmless, right? It's a win-win for everybody. Right. So first of all, so this is a cl- crowdsourced mapping app that is owned by Google Right now, it is pretty popular. It has about 90 million users. And the goal is to inform drivers of the quickest routes, how you can avoid accidents and road closers, and you do this in real time. So as you drive by and I'm 30 minutes behind you, you see a road is closed or, you know, there's something in the road. You can put that in the app in real time. And then me coming 30 minutes behind you, I then see that and maybe I get rerouted. Right. Sounds like a great idea. So so that on on its surface is a nice service. I think some GPS uh, systems are, are increasingly starting to factor in things like that, you know, real time traffic Mm -hmm. and closures and things of that nature. So we're, we're seeing that kind of technology advance broadly, but where, where ways as a pathfinding service is taking this to the next level is we'll reroute you not just by, you know, the next biggest highway, but maybe by a series of roads that you, there's no way you would come up with this path left to your own devices. And here's where technology supercharges people's ability to, you know, to make their own decisions a little bit like ride sharing services or like, or or like the, the sharing economy for short term stays and so forth. So what does Waze tell you to do if you're stuck in beach traffic? Right. So let's talk about Queen Anne's County specifically. It's a great (laughs) example, right? Because if you're coming home on route 50, you're heading West and you're coming toward the Bay bridge and it's a Sunday afternoon, we've all been there and it's a nightmare, right? You get on Waze and you're looking at 10 miles of traffic. Waze says, you know what? Get off at the next exit. Go down these local roads where residential neighborhoods even, and you're going to cut through here and you're going to weave through, and then you'll get back on the highway at a certain point. Well, that's a big problem, right? Because if you're funneling traffic onto side streets, not only are you clogging those roads, but then that becomes an issue for the local traffic, the folks that have nothing to do with the beach. You're the transient traffic going through, and then you're, you're clogging those roads. Also, you know, if there's an evacuation going on and the local government is giving you instructions and saying this is what you need Uh, to do, but maybe that information didn't get to Waze yet. (laughs) So Waze is telling you, nope, nope, get get on that road. That then prevents people from not only getting out of town, but also maybe potentially getting equipment into town. And, and these are these are the kind of roads that a person like me. I mean, I I mean, like like every Marylander, I spend my my requisite share of time in Ocean City and down at the beaches mm-hmm. and so forth. But I w- I would have no idea what side roads to take to loop around sure. to, to avoid some traffic. I don't know what what's going to be a through road versus a dead end and right. so forth. But if I've got, you know, a, a free app where the people ahead of me have already told me, you know, take this road, it's going to work out great. You're going to save 13 minutes. I'm really tempted to do that. Mm-hmm. I am that person. I'll save the 13 minutes. Sure. And now, and now I and the next 16 cars behind me are all taking this side road. We're clogging up a neighborhood where 
kids a few years ago were playing safely in the middle of the street because it was just a quiet little residential neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Now it's become a beach traffic thoroughfare. These are, incidentally, I can't help but get in this dig, these are the roads we're supposed to be maintaining with our highway user revenues that for about a decade have been on a starvation diet from state gas taxes. So that's not an incidental part of this, mm-hmm. that you know these become major transit thoroughfares on roadways that weren't built for it and largely aren't being maintained right now because we're starving. That's right. And so what you've seen in Queen Anne's County, if you're going down 50, you'll see Mobile sides on the side of the roadside and stay on 50. Do not get off. If you're if you're going over the bridge, stay on 50. Right. So they can put up a sign trying to dissuade people from using alternatives. But that's not going to dissuade and, Michael Sanderson. That, <laughs> I, I know right now. But that, that used to be for the clever insiders who had the, you know, the old maps, right, the right. big book with a whole Queen Anne's County map. And, you know, you turn to the right page, it shows you all these back roads. Right. Now everybody can get, you know, a free app on their smartphone. So as a practical matter, this is a whole different issue than it was even even like five years ago. This was this was not as available to everybody as it is today. So if you're in if you're in local transportation planning and road design and things of that nature, you may have a whole new challenge on your hands mm-hmm. with do you need to institute traffic calming and pinch points on roads that never needed them before right. because certain days of the year or even all the time. I mean, in some parts of the state where sure. you've got traffic backed up every day, mm-hmm. I mean, this is going to start littering all sorts of residential neighborhoods. And not to mention, I mean, what about if you're on I-95 heading north and there's an $8 toll coming up? Um, I bet you there's that app that's going to tell you if you take this handful of side roads, you might lose a minute or two, but you can save eight bucks. Um, I might be the person to do that as well. Sure. And so that's a whole extra set of side roads who are going to get maybe not, you know, maybe not uh, semi tractor trailers, but an awful lot of minivans coming your way. Now, I will say it's not all bad because <laughs> Google and Waze, they've launched the Connected Citizens Program, which can work with local governments to deliver critical information along with insights on traffic patterns and infrastructure problems directly to state and local governments. They are reaching out and trying yeah. to get in touch with state and locals to work with them, I think, to maybe to mitigate a little bit right. of you know, these concerns because local governments are concerned. But if they can do that, that adds a whole nother layer to this, right? If, if they're able yeah. to give you that information in real time and you're connected with them, that could also be a huge help to a local government. So, so at this point, I don't know. I don't know if this turns into a bill in the state legislature, which is which is really our stock and trade. Yeah. But but as a practical matter, is it is it already a land use and transportation planning challenge for state and local governments? You bet your boot it is. Yeah. So so um anyway, interesting stuff there. And you know, speaking of transportation challenges from technology. I mean, let's talk about cars driving themselves. We're already beginning to see this, and we are beginning to see some states change laws. The question in Maryland is, what are we going to do about cars that are going to be driving themselves down the road? Are we going to have to think about infrastructure differently? Who's going to regulate these cars? Um, you know, we're going to have to have different traffic laws. Who's going to be responsible? Self-driving vehicles do, I think, have the potential to transform how we live and work. They can save lives right. by reducing traffic crashes and, and providing more travel options to people who aren't able to drive, maybe. Right. But at the same time, you have local governments who have to realize 
you know, even it, even with the life-saving and economic benefits of this technology, we also have to think about the safety of those who travel our roadways, right? Right. So I think I, this fits the same pattern, that this is a desirable advent of technology. There is going to be a market for this in dollar terms, but also just in public sentiment. Absolutely. There are, there are going to be businesses who want to use this as a tool, and there are going to be citizens who say, this gives me mobility that I just wouldn't have otherwise, and it'll be a life changer for me to be able to do this. Yes. Sure. So, um, so it's coming. There, I mean, I don't think there's any debate that autonomous vehicles are going to represent a meaningful share of roadway traffic in our lifetime. Yes. So I don't I don't know whether you know whether that's 15 years or 4 years from now, but in in some you know measurable period of time, this will be a big part of being a traffic engineer and being in public works in you know, in the public sector. So <clears throat> do we do we need state legislation? Do we need local governments to have different kind of uh, employees? Do you mm-hmm. need different kind of people, more IT focused people as part of your public works department than you've ever sure, had? Sure. I would I would think that's where the smart money is. Mm-hmm. Um, but all all that bundled together, this seems like another obvious coming chapter in this extended, I would say book, but that's an antiquated term. Um, but and in, in, in this, you know, in this uh in this uh, cyber blog that we're we're writing about policy affecting technology, mm-hmm. um, I mean Maryland already has a work group convened that's been spending some time on this, and it's a combination of the state vehicle licensing you know, MVA and the Department of Transportation. Mm-hmm. We've got a, we've got a number of local participants on the group, also private sector and yeah. representatives from the automotive industry, which their, their input's going to be important. Right. So so we're already doing the right kinds of things to think about this, but. I don't think you and I or probably even that work group can think through everything that we're going to need within 10 years. No. So so you or I or our successors in state and local government are going to be grappling with this kind of stuff either in the state house in Maryland or down in Princess Anne and Towson and so forth in, in places where, where policy is being made in Maryland because this has that same confluence of – technology and service that's desirable but has consequences. Yes, it does. And again, a lot of this has, you know, wonderful benefits, the potential to do great things, but there are complicated policy issues that follow all of this technology around. And we've talked about a lot of that today. Hopefully you've enjoyed it. We would like you to tell us what you think about this new format. We know we're doing this a little bit differently. This was a completely different uh, method to our madness here on the podcast. So please reach out and let us know what you think. I mean, if you if you want to hear, if you're a listener of, of the Conduit Street podcast and you think this is worth exploring, we think this could be worth our time to try and generate every other week some content like this, which is on a topic that's interesting. Some of them will be about counties. Some of them, some of them might be just broader picture, mm-hmm. but this kind of stuff that's not necessarily, you know, torn from the headlines. We want to do that too. And our, our hope is maybe we can alternate and every other week we'll do current events and catch up and follow up 
on topics of interest. And then in the, in the off weeks, we'll do something like this where we're digging a little deeper. That's our thinking for right now. We'd love to hear your thoughts and whether that model makes sense for you. You can email Michael or myself. All that information is available online. You can always give us a call, too. That may be an antiquated technology. Uh, Old-fashioned, yeah. right. You can write us a postcard, send us a, send us a telegram, smoke signals. Whatever you, whatever we'll, you we'll want to do. Yeah. We'll take it. <laughs> part two, we're going to talk about new technology within local government. I think that is going to be the focus of part two of this special series yep. on evolving technology Yep. reshaping policy. Yep. Looking forward to it. Great. So that'll do it for part one. Uh, stay tuned for part two. For now, we'll leave it there. I think we've talked enough for today. Michael and Kevin signing off. We'll talk to you soon.